Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Coachpad has now been around for three seasons and coaches everywhere are saving time and being more efficient when it comes to scout cards. Coach Robinson from Texas says the thing I most enjoy is the ease of access to all the scout cards and how I can draw on them if I need to make any changes. Every coach that uses it says that it is so great to use. If you and your staff are tired of the old ways of preparing and using scout cards, check out thecoachpad.com to start enjoying scout team and making the 2023 season better than ever. Um, welcome back to NERPSA, the Gap Downbacker podcast. Um, today we have uh, currently the AD, but a longtime high school football coach um, at Parkview Baptist, uh, Coach Scott Dietrich. Coach, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No problem, Coach. And, and like I said, it was a good time talking to you before we started, and we've messaged back and forth a little bit. Um, and like I said, we've talked we we talked a little bit about your recent changes. But I mean, how did you end up not only being a longtime coach at Parkview Baptist, but now being the AD at Parkview? Um, it, it really was a combination of things, just from from being here for 20 years, coaching and, and sharing different roles. Uh, carrying some athletic director duties in the offseason of football. Uh, um, really, uh, along with my wife and family being here for all those years, just made a lot of lifelong connections. And um, I, I chose to leave uh, in the spring of 19. Uh, I've got some public school years and, and, and want to get back into that realm and finish that, my career I'm probably in public schools. Uh, when COVID hit, uh, it opened up. I know it shut down a lot of things, but it opened up a new opportunity for my wife. Uh, and, and by that, I had to leave the job that I was at, and it kind of uh, long route, short route, into me back up here at Parkview in, in a uh, an athletic director role. So, uh, just with my previous connections here, a lot of the same people are still here, and just my longtime ties and, and love for the school and um, and the love for the people here. It was an easy transition back. Good. Now, now the other thing, first thing I want to get to, because like I said, I reached out to you in part because. I was reading um, Rich Hargett's um, wing-based offense book, and you had, I think, one or two. Uh, I, I know you had one for sure. Um, yeah. Um, chapter. I'm not going to say article. Chapter in it. And it was it's pretty detailed on on how you install things and and the flex bone. And I, I mean, first thing I want to ask you, and this is why I like to ask flex bone guys is is why the flex bone. Why was that your offensive choice throughout the years? Why were you committed to that offense? That's an excellent question. In this day and age, it's a very valid question. And if you venture to the Flexmon world, you're going to get asked that many, many times, uh, successful or not. But um, I, I'm a, I'm an old ex-quarterback, and, and I love to throw the football, uh, believe it or not. And if you looked at some game tape from the past, you'd say, wait, wait, I thought you liked throw the football. <laughs> uh, 
and I jokingly tell people, but seriously as well, the only thing I like probably more than just watching a well-executed passing game is, is, is to win. And the situations I've been in uh, early in my career, I spent some time with, with uh, a coach that really took me under his wing and taught me option football. I realized that in a lot of programs, you know, this style of play gives you the best chance to be successful, not only as an offense, but as a team. Uh, because it's very unselfish, it, it can be uh, time-consuming, limit possessions, you know, all the all the known variables of, of flexible on football and why you do it. Um, and, and honestly, in growing up, I'm old enough to, you know, play in football in the 80s. Uh, I played FCS, what we used to call Division I AA football at McNeese State, uh, an FCS, currently FCS school in southwest Louisiana. And the kings of one double a football back then were georgia southern and georgia southern was a prolific double slot triple option spread option what they called it back then that takes on a whole new meaning nowadays <laughs> and they were the kings of our, our division and i'm like we never played them but I, from afar i'm watching these guys just rip through people and end up in the national championship every year and uh and i was kind of enamored with it and even as a younger kid watching the oklahomas and alabamas of the world uh, control college football and the wishbone, you know, I, I always liked option football. I never, you know, really ran it as a player much uh, as an offense for sure. And then early in my coaching career, never really, we carried option plays, but I got a chance about my fourth year coaching to go work for an option guy. And for two years, that really uh, gave my career some direction. And we ran full house wishbone one year, and then we evolved to flex bone because that's what a lot of teams were doing. And the reasons of putting those guys up in the slot positions compared to a, a wishbone halfback. And it just grew from there. Uh, he went on to Texas, got smart, made real money in Texas coaching. Uh, I, I moved back to Baton Rouge and got a chance to really grow that offense for 20 years here at Parkview Baptist. And we had a lot of success, won a lot of championships. And, and I just saw what it could do, uh, the flexibility it had. I mean, we had to turn over every stone over the years to – to beat better teams, compete with some of the same teams who, who just came up with countless ways to try to defend you. And, and so I'm sold on it because it can really um, take advantage of a lot of things, but also it can allow you to uh, use players in, in positions more than it. it's a system-based offense, but you can also feature players within it as well. Now let's build off that a little bit. Cause even today it's still, I mean, effective. Let's, let's not, it's not like this is something from the 80s that just, just got stuck there and isn't effective anymore. I mean, there's teams in Ohio that run effectively. I mean, up into this year, Army, Navy still ran it. Um, Air Force still runs it. Um, I know there's plenty of D3 and lower D2 teams that still run it. I've had Terry Harrison on, who's at Friends and AI program, who runs it. Mm -hmm. um, like, it's still a very successful offense. And, and you could argue it's evolved a little bit with the Coastal Carolina-esque uh, Kennesaw State stuff where – the gun triple stuff. Why do you think the triple is still, why is it just in general, why is it such an effective offense? Uh, this day and age, I think for several reasons, number one, it, it's just, it's so counterculture to what everybody sees. Uh, so you, you are a good chance, even in high school these days, you're, it's a good chance. You are the only team on everybody's schedule that's going to run this type of offense. Cause it's just so few a team to do it. Uh, so their awareness of the offense, having a plan to defend it. A lot of times they're calling around asking 10 different schools. Um, 
probably the best story I can come up with. And we played a lot of teams over the years. We played a team in the semifinals at Parkview about around 2017. And this team, uh, I won't mention them, but they they were very successful, very talented, several D1 players, one uh, AA type players. And they were just ripping everybody defensively. I mean, they must have had three-fourths of their games were shutouts. And when I'm watching game film, I'm like, they're, they're, they're not giving up a yard anywhere. But I knew we were something different for them. And they must have went through every front known to man through three quarters of play. And we ended up beating them pretty soundly. Uh, but you didn't feel like we were the more talented team at any point in the game, especially. But watching a lot of those players kind of play in frozen, lost with their eyes, or, or, or did not just being able to run to the football or, or blitz the passer, really made them play differently than they wanted to. So I think one of the main things that makes defenses play uh, differently than they're, what they're trained to do as far as just all-out pursuit. Uh, they're tied to responsibilities. Uh, they're tied to different players. If you throw in formations and complementary constraint plays. And, and I think it's a handful for most teams to prepare for, especially if they don't have great awareness um, of the offense. And, and these days, it's getting further and further away from defense coordinators of having seen it, coached it, or defended it. And I think that adds to the difficulty. The, the biggest problem probably, Coach, is not, to me, is not so much uh, putting pressure on defenses with it. It's many times it's your own fan base uh, that may not be enamored with it just because of style of play. Uh, but like I said, the, as an old ex-quarterback, the only thing I like more than, than throwing the football is, is winning. And if that's your best chance, uh, I'm going to stick to my guns. But I think it makes defenses just play totally different than what they want to play and what they play every other week of their season, except probably against you. Okay. Now, now the other thing, like I said, so going back to your chapter, like one of the things that enamored me is just how you teach and how you install. I like to, I always frank the point scheme, scheme at this point. I think if you want to figure out what somebody runs and what scheme they want, they run, that's great and learn what it is. That's fantastic. You can draw up whatever you want on the board. But if you don't know how to teach it or find a way to teach it to be effective for your kids, the scheme doesn't matter. Like, that's just the honest truth. I don't care what school you're at. So, like, so you want to break that down, saying how you approach teaching your offense to your kids? I think once, and, and I, re, re, um, I guess, reinvented the wheel every offseason because even though we were here with the bulk of our, I guess, the meat of our coaching staff, the head coach, our coordinators, and then even once our head, when our, our first head coach retired, uh, the nuts and bolts and uh, it did change. So every off season, I felt like we 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 started from scratch in, in our install and teaching progression, knowing that we had some returning players, some new players. But I always felt like with high school kids, you're never wrong starting back over to reinforce uh, what they may have forgotten or why we do what we do or whatever. But once philosophy is established, and I think that's a big point, is establish philosophy with your kids. Why you do what you do because they're not dumb. They're going to look at television. They're going to hear their parents talk. And, you know, uh, other people say, you know, why do y'all run something so old or antiquated or different, um, you know, boring, whatever they want to call it. So I, I was very proactive with that, the philosophy of why we do what we do. And I would use any example that could really relate to the kids. And, and not to get off your question, but there was a, a good receiver from um, 
uh, John Curtis High School in, in New Orleans, uh, which is a 20, almost 30 state championship type uh, program. They're split back beer. They've been split back beer since day one. And so tremendous success in the state of Louisiana. It's just an icon high school. Well, they had a good receiver a few years ago. Uh, Malachi Dupree, I think was the last name. Well, he signs with LSU and he's on some ratings, number one receiver recruit in the country. And so I use these type of things as an example. And I say, guys, look, if you're a good college football prospect, it's not because of what offense or defense you come in. They can project you to fit in their system. But this kid had, in, in three years as a starter, very modest stats because he came from a split-back beer offense. And he probably had the choice of many high schools to go to if he went to a private high school in New Orleans, which he did. And I said, so if he averaged 25 catches a year, that's 75 catches uh, in his career. That's very modest for the number one receiver recruit in the country. Uh, but he went there because he wanted to win championships. And he used camps or combines to showcase his, his true abilities uh, outside of game film. And so we always try to put the emphasis on winning, doing what it takes to win. And if our best chance was to win, uh, using flex bonds, we did. So we established philosophy. And then once we got off philosophy, we, we focused on personnel, placing them in our system where they best fit and explaining to them why and what the demands of that position was. And then we started to install the offense once that was in place. Um, and it, it was different for each position group, whether there's O-line, quarterbacks, uh, wings, or, or wide receivers, or even tight ends. And we, we taught them – actually, we started teaching um, defensive concepts before offensive concepts. We started to teach them about a defense before we ever installed a play. Because every, once we started installing defense, our offensive plays, it was always in context of a defensive look. So if you're talking about the O-line or the core of the, the offense, the backs, quarterback, fullback, slots, they had to understand, you know, the difference between a 4-2, a 50, a 4-3, a 3-3, a 5-1 a, a there. Because as soon as we said we're going to teach you midline double or, or triple, it was in context of a defender as their fit, their read, their rule, their block, uh, their reaction. And so if we're just trying to teach them a play without any context, I felt like we were kind of spitting in the wind. So we taught them defenses before we taught offense. And, and then we started to install our core plays uh, from there. And we tried to mix in in the offseason as much uh, logistical work as we could. I always felt like we had to get the cadence down because it's a rhythmic offense with a rhythmic cadence. Uh, we had to get the snap in place. We had to get the footwork, the initial footwork, and get our mesh in place. I, I felt like if we started spring football, and we have spring football in Louisiana, it's limited, but it's still there. Um, without you know, some core things in place, then we were playing catch-up. So we tried to get some things established in the offseason as much as we could. Um, and we just taught the offense, and we got it in place. And then, it, you know, I said, always felt like defensive offense for us was flipped. The offseason was our tough time to really get the offense stalled. So that once we got to the season, we just tweaked it, we adjusted it, we added things, subtle things to it, but we repped it. And we were ready for every front, every stunt, every week. Uh, defense, I thought it was in reverse. In the offseason, they had a little easier time to get a base defense in. Uh, then each week they had to prepare for an entirely different offensive system. Um, whereas I may look at film of, you know, Jones High School down the street that runs a 4-2 against every spread team they see, and I have no idea 
what they're going to run against us because we're a totally different animal. But our rules are in place. Our system is in place. And we do enough things in practice to keep all our uh, footwork, all our schemes available and alive, ready for any front they may throw at us. Uh, and my disclaimer to kids every week was, hey, we're going to prepare primarily focused on what they've shown. Uh, but we always have some drills built in to where we touch on every front in every weird situation that somebody may throw at us. Um, but at seven o'clock on Friday night is when we're going to really find out what their plan is. And that's when we go to work. But installing it, it that was kind of the progression we followed every offseason. Now, now, to get a little more detail on that, because obviously a spring ball, we don't unfortunately have it up here just because our weather doesn't allow us to start spring sports soon enough. Um, sure. Because it's still snowing when most when southern states are playing baseball. Um, but part of my question is like, so, okay, looking at that spring ball and how you're approaching it, how do you, like, what does that like first day look like? Is that first day literally just going over the defenses that you're going to see and lining up in your base offense and going over your cadence or is it, a how, how do you approach that? Cause like you say you go over the defense search, but how's that actually look in practice is what I'm really asking. Uh, great question. It, it really comes down to how much we've gotten installed in the offseason. I'm a big proponent of, of classroom time and field time. If we're on the field, and, and, and my our assistant coach is probably the offensive assistant coach over the years, just you know, probably went to sleep with this in their head many times. The guys, look, I'm not saying we don't coach on the field, but we coach while we're moving for the most part. If we stop a drill, if we're walking through something, that's because that's his plan that way. But things that we can install in the classroom, or even if it's a walkthrough, then let's do that. But when we're on the field, that to me is valuable time uh, to where they're actually repping and they're executing because um, I've got some some quirky, weird sayings or, or things, but I, I think they, they have sense. Um, and, and one thing to me, we, we have a philosophy on offense of uh, – things that we emphasize, I never talk about statistical goals. The only statistical goal I ever mention our kids is scoring one more point than the other team. Otherwise, I never talk about averaging so much on first down or this, this play or whatever. Um, but we talk about TNTs and 11 is one. Uh, TNTs being to do the things that take no talent. And, uh, you know, obviously playing hard and physical, smart and disciplined, and eliminating turnovers because most of that is a fundamental skill. Um, and then there's little subcategories to that that we emphasize. But 11 and one to me was is is getting 11 guys to play as one. Uh, there's 11 guys on offense, but only one ball. So that just preaches unselfishness. And we reinforce that. If we have one football, what's 10 other guys doing to help that play be successful? And then I always felt like, and I know this is not 100% true, but in um, – in my antagonism toward defensive coaches sometimes, uh, I always said their life was a lot easier because I felt like offensively, you know, it took 11 guys to make a play good. It only took one guy to mess it up. And defensively, there could be, you know, out of 11 guys, 10 could be wrong, but one guy makes a play for you and bails you out. And, and I know that can help on offense a little bit too, but just from the very snap of the football, if there's not some things that happen and soundly and correctly, the play never gets going or off the ground. Um, but I would say spring football day one, ideally, I want our two meshes in place. I want our, our, our being able to build, identify our five major fronts 
and with some proficiency be able to execute our core plays. We have five core run plays, two core pass protections, and then the different bells and whistles off of each. Um, but if we went to spring ball with those things in place, certainly not perfect, but at least ready to start executing, then I felt like that was ideal if we could take the field in that. And our drills would, you know, we like everybody, we split our we, – we, we were a, a one-platoon team, so we were not able to split our, our squad. So we had limited time, which I mean, makes me even more proud of what we maintained over 20 years is we did it with just – uh, less than half of the, off, uh, of the total practice time. You mix in special teams and defense, and our kids had to learn both sides of the ball. So we always had to balance how much we were putting on them, but also having enough in to, to remain relevant and effective, if that answers your question. No, 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 no that's, that's, that's kind of what, how I was kind of, when I was reading the chapter, wondering how you did it. Because that, that's, again, like, again, X and O's are great, and I've heard – I mean, by doing this and other things, like I've heard people and I've watched people run the triple or hell inside zone. That's great. But until you explain to me how you teach it and how you get it through your kids, it's also for me personally, is there a better way as I go forward as a coach? So I've done this 12 years that I can teach stuff to kids. Like mm-hmm. there is no one, two fits all or one size fits all mechanism for kids. Every kid's different, how they learn. But some people have a better way that just clicks with a wider majority of kids, which leads to less reteaching. The other thing I wanted, you mentioned something there. You talked about the cadence was a little bit more difficult thing there or, or just timing it up. Why is that? Like, And then what kind of goes into making sure that is where you need to? Is there certain group drills you use? Um pod drills like what what, how do you focus on your cadence why does it take as much as it does well most guys that i've talked to in this offense uh have settled in on a um a rhythmic cadence and you'll still see some teams that don't and you you the one way to spot it is you'll see the quarterback foot the motion he'll trigger with his foot and playing quarterback, but never playing being a triple option quarterback. I always just knew pre-snap how much was on a, a quarterback. And I'm always trying to take more off of them because they naturally have a lot on their plate in any decision-making offense, whether it's zone read, spread, throwing principles, or, or under center flex bone. And so I we trigger our motions. And, and of course, this is a motion-based offense with our, our slots, our wings. Uh, and most people are and those motion triggers and there's I try to break it down into three different triggers are tied to the cadence so that cadence the initial cadence now you got to have some some curveballs in there it can't just be the straight cadence every time (laughs) you know you got to have some some fastballs and some off speed and then your normals and so we have our rhythmic normal cadence like everybody which is almost like a bait because the defense gets baited into that I'll tell you coach the first probably the first eight to 10 years that we ran this offense here um, until our same conference opponents or district opponents got used to it, man, you're looking at three to five freebies a game of of defense offsides. Uh, I mean, we got as many as eight or nine in one game. So it, that was a, that was a a side effect that you couldn't count on, but it was a nice one. It kept the defense honest because you had some curveballs in there, but our motion triggers were tied to, different parts of our cadence and 
how we potted that was something that was a non-negotiable with me was every day. If we were going on the field, we were going to do a snap cadence and two-step drill, um, whether it was off to the side, whether it's out of the way. And we had, and, and that ties to um, what I'll say next is we have almost most of our offensive linemen worked at center because I never wanted us to be short of a center and being able to keep our best five in the game. So all five, usually all five of our starting offensive linemen snapped the ball, and then we cherry-picked the remaining guys. So all of our quarterbacks always had somebody to snap from. We had multiple guys that could snap, uh, and we had you know just a, a kind of a group drill, almost a big circle, uh, where different guys called out the cadence, and they rotated around because I felt like, you know, if we have some things about taking the snap in place, how we put our hand, how the center snapping the ball, in the rhythmic of our cadence, we should be able to snap the ball from anybody, anytime. And then we incorporated two steps to that drill. And then we incorporated our A backs, our slots in that drill to where we would just call out plays. So the center was stepping in relation to a play. So he wasn't just snapping the standing there. He was snapping and moving forward like you want him to. Then our quarterbacks were taking the first two steps of those drills. And then we had our A backs triggering just for a step or two, not full motion. It was really a warm up but it was a warm-up with a purpose. We're getting rhythmic, we're getting cadence, and, and we're getting our first two steps and our motion triggers all tied in that one pod drill. And, and I tell you, I call it the, the most important five minutes of the day because that's the, the battery of your offense. If you're not getting the snap and the cadence, man, we're, we're going to have a rough time with executing anything. And, uh, and I'll, I'll give ourselves credit for that. We, we, we very rarely mess that part of it up because we, we just repped it every day. Okay. Now, now, kind of just build off that real quick. What does a general offensive, and I know every offensive practice is different and depending on the week, the time of the year, what you're installing, but what is a, could you give in some of it so far, what does a general offensive practice look like for you? Well, I looked at offensive practice as three different, three different types of practice. We had spring ball, we had fall camp, and then we had in season. Spring ball was a lot more flexible because being in the situation we were at for Parkview, our eighth graders going to be ninth graders. We're already on campus. And as long as they signed a waiver saying that by going through spring football, I'm making Parkview my school of first choice for high school, I'm committed to them that freshman year. So if they signed that and went through spring football and said, I really don't want to play in the flex ball or I don't want to be here. I don't like these guys of such and such down the streets recruiting me. Then uh, they lost that freshman year. So, but we did have 99.9% of our eighth graders going through spring with us. And we get our hands on them a little bit before spring football, but not a ton. So spring, we would split our individual drills in what we call A and Bs. A's for being, for lack of a better term, advanced, B for beginners. And it allowed me to do specific, and every coach, um, to do specific drills for the maturity of the group I had. And so if I was with the A's, those were guys that were probably returning, older, more experienced with the offense. We could focus on things of where they're at. Whereas the Bs, when I got them and the A's were on defense, um, you know, we were able to do more things very basic for them. Um, so spring football was very flexible on if we were going to enter squad scrimmage some, uh, do some kind of offensive line recognition drill, anything. Uh, fall camp was more pointed toward um, really just sharpening um, 
getting ready for every defense, getting our schemes in place. So it may be more group and team drills that are, along with a lot of individuals still, focused on uh, just getting sharp at our, our skills, but also with an awareness of fronts and stunts uh, at all times. But once fall camps uh, was over and we got ready for season, it was really four separate days. Uh, Monday, we called Mental, Mental Monday. And, and we usually played JV on Mondays. And so it was a shorter practice. It was a day that we usually went out with just helmets. We were still digesting the, the scout report, especially with defense. Because like I said, game planning for offense in the flex phone is a loose term because <laughs> your offense is always in. <laughs> um, it's it's trying to prioritize your reps for the looks you expect and any little tweaks that you're you're putting in, uh, or if you have to rep personnel different, um, or if you want to add a formation and rep some things out of it. Um, so that was really more of a a group team type of day, uh, especially on offense. Uh, but Tuesday and Wednesday were a little bit more routine. You know, I, we always started practice with some type of purpose field warm-up and for me it was uh quarterback centers a backs with our cadence snap motion trigger receivers were doing something individual o-line and receivers always had more true individual time than anybody uh and they went through a, a circuit of warm-ups the, the next 10 minutes uh 10 to 15 minutes spent on how good we were at it um was a drill which i got to where it was just tremendously helpful I call it an all-in-one drill, uh, just like a better term. If you looked at it, you'd say, well, Coach, that's just half-line. It was half-line without the A-backs. It was uh, center, you know, guard tackle, possibly three-man surface if you're working at that, and a quarterback in the fullback, and we had a scout look, and we had a script. Um, one day would be more of an even front focus. The next day would be an odd front focus. And our quarterbacks and our backs rotated left side or right side from one day to the next. So they got, you know, a good dose of both sides. Um, and that's one thing about triple option. You can't just be a right-handed team or dominant hand team. You got to be able to run everything both ways uh, because the defense may push you to one side or the other. Uh, and numerically, you may have an advantage. So you got to rep everything both ways. Uh, how guys are able to flip their O-line and do that is never clicked with me. Uh, we worked, you know, guys on just one side of the ball or the other as far as the linemen go. But we went through all of our, our diehard schemes as far as option-based schemes. And we got live reads, uh, adjustment schemes, and footwork. And it was just a great period to really keep things available. So if, if we knew we were playing a, a really good team that was a 4-3 team no matter what you did, uh, even to that extent, we still, on the odd front day, we focused on the 3-3, 5-1 bear, 3-4-50. Because I never wanted us to get away from those schemes and, and keep them available. Uh, from there, we would move to some type of passing drill, whether it was routes on air, one on one, or some type of scale against our own defense. And then, of course, O line is working the same thing with our D line, whether it's pass pro, pass draw, screen period. Um, and for us to get a realistic look at, at a scale setting or seven on seven setting, we had to make it a perimeter drill. And that's something I try to do some in the summertime when everybody's doing true seven on seven is I try to get some like-minded teams to do a perimeter drill. You had to be careful with it. So it doesn't get too physical, but make it to where it's perimeter run perimeter screen and throwing the football. So you got a, because I mean, if I've been true a lot and somebody's giving me a, a you know, four, three 
uh, hip with safeties at 12, 15 yards and backers at six yards, I would look at them and shrug my shoulders just like, first and 10, if we're really playing and, and I'm running what I'm running, are you really going to do that? Absolutely not. Because uh, I would never throw the ball on you. We'd rush for 500 yards. So uh, I had to get perimeter drills from our own defense, and we had to spice him up so that we got, you know, perimeter option, toss, quick screen, and then play action and throwing off of it. And then from there, we usually evolved to maybe uh, a brief inside period, just keeping our inside screen schemes physical, isolations, traps, and things like that. And then we went into with team. And team for us was always um, fast, you know, we believe it or not, coach for our flex ball team, we worked um, no huddle and two minute offense more than probably any spread team that that was a one platoon team you've ever seen, because we did so much play calling at the line of scrimmage. Whether it was two minute or regular offense, we had all kind of little checks and schemes and alerts and alarms and lookovers ready to go at the line of scrimmage. Because I'm just selfish. I always wanted to have the marker last <laughs> and the final say before the play. Yeah. Um, you may whip my tail, but it's not because you fooled me or because you you got to a look at the last second that I wasn't ready for. We, we were going to be ready for it, and we were going to have the final say, whether I had or my quarterback or somebody on the line had to say. So that's – and we ended the week with, with mostly situational stuff. Uh, team segments and of course blending in special teams and things like that so nothing really fancy it was just getting the offense installed in in a communicative way that you could just build on and teach over and over and over and you had a great foundation to grow from okay now you said not being prepared for everything there so obviously you go over like your five to six main defenses you see but what happens when you get that what i call a junk defense the seven one diamonds where they put everybody in line, one linebacker deep, or the six, the weird six fronts that like may like it's not a four four, but it's something we like. What happens when you get those weird, just what I call just trash junk defenses? How do you how do you deal or how do you prepare for something like that? Obviously, like it's a desperation play because for somebody who doesn't know how to defend your offense, but like what do you tell your kids? What what is your kind of mindset there? Oh, man, that's a great question because this got me before. Uh, you know, I call them extreme fronts. Um, and, and I tell our kids, look, no matter what they line up in, we're going to put it into one of five categories. We're going to call it one of five things. That's it. And now it, it, it could be a, a variation of that, maybe different than what we've seen, but we've got to fit it into one of those categories. And I haven't seen a front that we wouldn't. Um, and I tell them, it, look, it, it's whether it's unsound or junk front, it's not unsound until we can exploit it and prove that it is. So until we make sense of it, let's say you get a team that's fairly athletic, but maybe a little undisciplined, but willing to kind of roll the dice and give you something exotic and weird. And, man, they're popping gaps, and they're causing you fits. I said, look, it's going to feel like there's play, they're playing with 15 guys on defense until we settle down and get a hold of that defense. And so that's why I always, always big when we put in defenses and talk plays that it, it's, it's not what a def, it's not who a defender is. It's, it's not always where he is. What matters first is what he is. So in any front, it was important to us to recognize what is who the zero, if they, if they had a zero nose, that was a big deal. Uh, or if he's a shade, 
because we started our count from there. The first down lineman, second down lineman, play side backer, force defender. Um, you could have the same guy in a 4-2 look that's playing right outside your slot and say he's number 25. Uh, well, in a 4-2, we call that guy a rover. Some people call him a spur or bandit or jack, but he's a rover is the way we see eight-man front that player. They stem to a 4-3, and maybe they stem it the other way, where the you know, one of them becomes the mic, the other one bumps out, the other, the other rover kicks back and gives you a two-shell. Well, to the quarterback who identifies our front, that's a 4-3. Well, if I'm playing right wing and number 25 out there in that same position, it's now become a 4-3 hip backer. That's a different guy. I mean, that's a different position. And how we handle him in some ways could be different. So we always had to be tied to that front. Um, I would say the hardest fronts to really get a handle on, and it usually happens in the seven-man front, is is a 4-3 or a 50 that will give you three guys stacked over the ball. Um, It's more common out of a 50 now. Some people call it a Lincoln stack or a 50 stack with a nose and the two backers stacked up. Um, Then you made four eyes. You know, nine techniques and two safeties. Um, if you haven't taught your quarterback to see that as a 50, um, that can be, you know, kind of a tricky thing at first. And then we even had one team one night play a 4-3, but they stacked the two two techniques and the mic right over the ball. So we had to kind of make sense of that because we had never seen that and, and kind of had to give it a, an identity. But once we're able to something really weird and strange, once we're able to really fit it into the category of one of our five, big five fronts, then our kids can, can figure out who's who and what's what and, and make sense from there. Okay. Now the other thing, then last question I have for you is, and I like, I, I asked this for a variety of coaches and a variety of options, but what is your favorite flex bone play? Uh, <laughs> see, I like, see, you always get the pause. Like you want to, you want to answer about five your ways, but yeah, like what, like, yes. <laughs> what you, and it's not, it doesn't have to be the most successful one, but like the one that you enjoy calling, like what is, or installing, like what is one that your favorite one to go into? Probably mid double, midline double. Um, I love mid triple. And beer triple is great too, but I love and the flex bone coaches feel this way because they always think in terms of their core runs, and it's like okay, it's like a family of five kids. You you got to have them all. I mean, you don't want to lose any of them, so it's hard to separate any of those. But I would say mid double for this reason is early on here. That was such a play that devastated people that didn't know how to defend it. We could get in all kind of different formations and still have a mid double play even if perimeter numbers were not friendly. Um, I tie a lot of attached runs, uh, attached passes to a mid-double package. So if I want to throw four verticals, very generic, at a double slot against one high, but the team is stemming around and not really staying one high, sometimes they're showing you two, whatever, you don't really want to get into that world, then I'll attach mid-double to it and give my quarterback a way to get out of it if the look is not friendly. Maybe with a perimeter screen, mid-doubles attached to it. So it's been a, a very bailout play, effective play, uh, versatile play. And um, uh, based on that, I would have to say mid-double. It always feels good to call. <laughs> For me, it's 10 and 11. As always, it never yeah. feels real bad to call 10 or 11. Okay. Well, coaches, one coaches by um, – not by – Twitter um, bio will be in the – in the 
description below. I am butchering this like no other right now. Um, <laughs> um, make sure you give him a follow. Uh, great stuff. I mean, you can literally just search his name and you'll find a bunch of stuff on YouTube. On I think he's got Coach's Toy stuff, stuff with cheap picks. He's got all kinds of stuff. Okay, so you can find stuff, reach out to him. Um, Coach is very easy to get a hold of. Um, like, share, subscribe, all that lovely jazz. Um, check out our sponsor, Coach Pad. And then otherwise, that is another episode of the Gap Down Backer Podcast.